Amen. Well, I would ask that you would open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We are going to continue on in our series in the book of Colossians, and uh, we have a lot to go through uh, today. So let's start Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. We're going to read all the way to verse 23. Um, And if you are new with us in this series, um, I want to just very quickly remind us that what we're doing in this series is we're looking at um, what is the passage saying to us? So we're not going to spend a lot of time considering the application. Um, and we're actually trying to look at zero application. And today is going to be very, very difficult. But uh, we're going to do our best. And so I want you to listen as I read this. Um, what is this passage saying? What are we hearing Paul say to us? Now, like I have been doing uh, with the previous uh, sermons, I want to take and just again, um, just look for really quickly at one area that we need to just be aware of. Last uh, week we looked at kind of the occasion, what was happening, and the week before we looked at who is the author. And today I want to answer the question very quickly, uh, why is it written? And so if you have your app with you, you can follow with that, or if you have your Bibles with you, you can please open them up. But really quickly, why was this book, why was this letter written? And I'm going to use Norman Geisler's um, answer. He believes, and I think it's true, that there are three reasons why uh, the book of Colossians is written. At first, uh, Paul sought to show the deity and the supremacy of Christ in the face of this heresy that was taking place in, in, the, in the church. Uh, second, he wanted to lead believers into spiritual maturity. And so we're going to look at that quite a bit more today, where, where Paul is very um, clear about um, why we're saved and what, we're, you know, what led to our salvation. And then the third reason he wrote this book, and we're going to look at that next week, is to inform the church about his situation and to um, elicit from them prayer on his behalf. And so this morning, uh, the passage that we read are go- is going to look much more at the second reason for why Paul wrote this letter. So if you have your Bibles with you, um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, all the way to um, 23. So I will do my best to to read this for us well. So I hope you have your Bibles with you, and please follow along. Paul says this, Colossians chapter um, 2, verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ, uh, Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness, He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him. Through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. 
He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come, the reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up by their idle notions, by their unspiritual minds. They have lost connection with the head from the whole from whom the whole body, supported and held together by the ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you, are, you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Whew! Now, to hammer through all of that in 21 minutes without going into application. So, you have your Bibles out, right? Awesome. The encouragement is significant. But the question, obviously, as I read that, and I fully accept I'm not the world's greatest reader, but as you listened, what did you hear? This is the question we're wrestling with. What did we hear? So we're going to go back to verse 6, and we're going to start over, and we're just going to slowly go through it. And this is why I need you to have your Bibles open on your lap, because I'm not going to reference and reread everything. But you need to follow along, because there are some really important things here that we need to hear. And not just immediately think about what we should do with, but we need to hear them. Because I think for all of us, there there is truth that is portrayed that is taught in these passages, that is extremely applicable to us, and yes, we need to apply it to our lives, but we also need to start with an understanding of what those are. So let's go back to verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue you to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So in this one or two verses, I could ask you, what, what are some words maybe, or what are some phrases, or what, are, what is a word that jumps out at you? And again, I'm pushing this because I want to, and I hope that as you finish this series, that you will have also learned some tools on how to read Scripture for yourself. So what's a word that jumped out at you? We don't have time to go through all of them with you, but let me share, you, share with you really quickly what two words that jumped out at me. Just as. Right there at the beginning. So then, just as. And you can see that there's a connection here between submitting to Jesus 
and living for Him. They're not separate. They're not two different experiences. When you submit, just as you submitted, you need to now live. And in those two simple words, Paul begins to, to give us an understanding of where he is planning on going with this portion of his letter. So if you go now to verse 8, you see that Paul expresses, or he here expresses his, the first of a series of warnings. There are three warnings that Paul gives in this passage, and this is the first one. But he starts off by wanting everyone to hear that you are submitting to Jesus and living for him. They're the same. Just as you don't submit to Jesus for salvation and then live as you please. So that's an important thing for Paul to make clear as he goes now into these warnings. So he starts his first warning with this simple statement, see to it. Okay, This is, while it's a warning, this is a little bit different than the kind of warning we see in the next, the next two warnings. This is a call to action. Paul says here, see to it. They are to be stewards of, or we are to be stewards of our relationship with Jesus. Meaning that if we find ourselves taken captive, if we find ourselves being deceived by deceptive thoughts, basically what Paul is saying, that's on you. That's on you. So he's warning them, but he's saying it in this way, see to it that no one takes you captive. Meaning, there's a responsibility that he wants the church to hear. That the church, the Christians, have a responsibility for their relationship with Jesus. We cannot simply say, well, I gave my life to Jesus now, and if anything happens to me, if I get led astray, if anything, whatever, if I'm misled, that must be on the church, it must be on someone else. Paul here says to the church, see to it that that doesn't happen. It's on you to make sure that doesn't happen. Paul is speaking to a church who have experienced the fullness of Jesus. That word fullness has come up multiple times so far already in this letter. So the real question that he has for them is, why would you now open yourself up to returning to the very thing that Jesus freed you from? Why would you again go back to something that is temporary to give you your identity? Paul is clear that these deceptive philosophies depends on human traditions and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. These are man-made rules. Then, to make sure that there is no confusion, Paul gives this powerful characterization of what we have in Christ. He says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Verse 10, And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Humanity will always be tempted to go after something man-made. Humanity will always be tempted to go after something man-made. For the church in Colossae, they were tempted to go back to circumcision. Or the Judaizers there wanted these Gentile Christians to view circumcision as something that was required for salvation. And this is why in verse 11 and 12, Paul makes a very strong case for having been spiritually circumcised by Jesus. He outlines how we were buried and we were raised with Christ. And how this is the work of God, not the work of a human being. 
And this leads him to making this incredible declaration of victory. And I want you to notice this as you read through verses 13 and 14. There's a few things to really listen for. One, there's some contrasts. Paul makes a contrast here between you and God. And also notice that midway through, he switches from using language like you, and he switches to us after he explains what God did. He wants them to see, he wants them to hear that being a Jesus follower is not through what we can do, but what Jesus has already done for us. So now, listen to those contrasts as I read these two verses to us again. He says this, verse 13, When you were dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, there's there's the you part, God made you alive with Christ. There's the contrast. This is what God did. Now look at this. He forgave us our sins. Here he switches to us. Suddenly it's no longer about what you were, it's about who we are now. And he wants the church to recognize what Jesus has done in us. He goes on, having canceled the charge of our legal debt, and he goes on all the way to verse 15. We already read these. But again, these are important Things for us to hear that there is a change that has taken place by what Jesus did. And that's a theme that Paul continues to push here. That, that you and I are no longer in the church in Colossae. You are no longer what you were because of what Jesus has done. Not because of what we have done. So what do we hear in these passages? What do we hear him say? And I should have maybe put this so that we could put it on the screen but I think we could, we could read these, two, these verses this way. That while I was dead in my sin, God made me alive with Christ. He forgave me all my sins, canceling the charge of my legal indebtedness, which stood against me and condemned me. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That is what Paul wants the church to hear. This is what Jesus did, and this is the us. This is who we are in Christ because of what Jesus did. And we should hear this as well. It is no longer about being you know, moved by a certain kind of teaching or, or you know, being taken captive by things that sound good or as we're going to look at in a little bit, legalism and, and rules and, and obligations. We need to look at what did Jesus do for us and hold on to that and live that out. In verse 16, Paul gives another warning. This one comes in light of the statement he just made. And he says, therefore... If this is what Jesus has done for us, if this is who we are, if this is what defines us, if Jesus has triumphed over the cross and has disarmed powers and authorities, if he has canceled the charge against us, if we have been made alive in Christ, therefore, look at what he says, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or by with regard to a, a religious festival, a noon new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Your salvation, our salvation, Paul says, is not based on what we eat or drink or religious events. The measuring stick for our salvation is Jesus. The measuring stick for our salvation is Jesus and will always be only Jesus. 
Not legalism. Not man-made rules. And Paul wants the church to hear this because they're slipping back into following these rules. Then he adds, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Jesus. Paul wants them to hear that these were may have had benefits at one time. They may have had a place to play in their lives at one time. These religious practices may have begun as an act of obedience or with good intent, but as often happens, what was intended to lead towards achieving a goal became the goal. These things were meant to reflect what mattered, but instead they became what mattered. And this is something, again, that we need to recognize, and I want to really quickly, because time is my enemy, I want to really quickly illustrate to you what this means, and so I need you to hear me carefully. Personally, I'm against drinking. I I have been a pastor for too long to see a lot of benefit in alcohol. So I'm personally, I would say to you, I don't see a whole lot of benefit in alcohol. As a matter of fact, I see zero benefit in alcohol. So I would say to you, my personal view is you shouldn't drink. This is how this works. Now this next step would be, so uh, should a Christian drink? From what I just said, this is my view. Next question, should a Christian drink? Next question, can you be a Christian if you drink? Next position, if you, are a Christian, if you drink, you probably aren't a Christian and shouldn't be a member of this church. There you go. That's what Paul is talking about here. What once was the goal, or what was said to lead to a goal, that now becomes the goal. So I said over here that I personally don't think that there's much benefit in alcohol. And that's now taken to say alcohol and whether you drink is more important than whether you have a relationship with Jesus. And that is what Paul is struggling with here. Not that topic necessarily. In their situation, it was circumcision. But he's saying to this church, you must hold on to what Jesus did. Anything else is a shadow of that. That was an application. I'm just saying that's what he's saying to them. (laughs) So the first warning was about not being taken captive. The second warning is is to not let anyone judge you by what you do. And now the third warning is this. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and worship of angels disqualify you. Paul uses very, very strong language here in this warning. And even stronger language in regard to describing these persons who would do this. Look at what he says about them. He goes on to say, Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with their idle notion by their unspiritual minds. At the heart of what Paul is describing here are people focused more on what, what they experience than on Jesus. We've all met this overly religious or self-righteous kind of person. They present themselves as having somehow mastered Christianity. They speak with a false sense of humility. They use phrases like glory to God and praise Jesus when really they want the glory and they want the praise. They tell stories of how God has moved, but they are very sure to make 
you understand that God moved through them. I told my wife, I'm going to have to be careful here because this stuff irritates me. And it irritates Paul. And Paul is basically saying here, do not let a self-righteous person ever make you wonder whether you're saved. Spiritual abuse is a thing. And Paul is pushing against it here. Do not let someone with their puffed up view of their salvation and their, their self-righteousness, do not let that kind of person make you question your relationship with Jesus because your relationship is, with Jesus is not based on what other people think. It is based on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Paul is very clear here. And we should never allow such a person to disqualify us. Paul describes these people of having lost connection with the head, meaning Christ. They're no longer in this to really share the true gospel of Christ. They're in this to now promote themselves and to make themselves be um, almost like Christ. Paul suggests that this person focuses on themselves and not on Christ. This is a self-referencing. This is self-referencing rather than being rooted in who Christ is and what Christ is doing. Jesus should be our delight and our expression of delight. You cannot delight in Jesus and then delight in your expression of yourself. Jesus must be both our delight and our expression of delight. When we delight in what we are doing, we are confusing the end with the means. Paul's criticism is very sharp here against those who boast in their own spiritual experiences. The condemnation is that these fraudulent judges, these fraudulent people, have taken the place of Christ as the ultimate end, the source of delight. If you could only become, if people would only become as spiritual as so-and-so, if they would only do those same things, if they would only not do certain things, and that is something that Paul is arguing against here and saying, we do not allow ourselves to be judged by those who feel that they have somehow mastered Jesus. And we are not measuring against them. We are measuring always against who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Paul is clear that this is essential, that it is essential that we are following Jesus. We should not follow men who judge us or people who judge us because we don't follow their religious rules. Jesus paid for our entire debt on the cross. We do not fall under the control of those who condemn. And we could say so much to this. Furthermore, we should not fall under the influence of those who's, who use visions to elevate themselves. Any work of the Holy Spirit that is done in you or through you is for the glory of God, not for us. And so Paul, again, is very clear. Anyone that elevates themselves by what God is doing do not let this kind of person judge you or, or condemn you or influence you. In verse 20, Paul asked the church to consider why they would return to legalism. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. See, what he's doing here is he is setting up a rhetorical question. Paul wants them to see how it doesn't make sense to on the one hand, hand to believe that Jesus died for them, and then live as if Jesus, as if the death of Christ hasn't happened. Even going so far as to submitting to the very things for which Jesus died. 
So Paul, giving that Paul, Christ has paid for our debt, and we are now in Christ, and Christ is all in us, Paul now asks the rhetorical question. Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. If Christ died for our debt, for a debt that we could not pay, why would we now subject ourselves again to the burden of trying to do the things that Christ already paid for? The way these false teachers gained power over people was by convincing them to freely submit again to rules. And Paul is saying here to the church, hear what Jesus has done. You do not need to go back to rules and regulations to be saved. You do not need to go back to the way that you used to live in bondage, hoping that if you did all these things, then somehow now you would have forgiveness and you would be good enough to go to heaven or you would be good enough to be a Jesus follower. Paul reminds them, Jesus has already paid for it all. And if you have submitted to Him, just live in Him. Continue to live in Him. Not going back to all of these rules. It is not in their best interest, as a church, Paul suggests, to attempt again to allow these people to control them. These leaders use commands like don't handle, don't touch, don't taste, to bring people under their submission, not under Christ's submission. Christians should exercise the decision to live by faith, not by submitting to these sorts of rules. The superficial rules refer to things destined to perish with use. Paul is very clear. These are not spiritual and they are not eternal. They are based on merely human commands and teachings. And if Christians submit themselves to these rules, they neglect the reality that our debt has already been completely forgiven by Jesus. And then Paul throws in one more point by stating, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. That's quite a jab, and I thank Paul for it. Because we've all been in those moments where we have felt disqualified based on what someone has told us. Based on the fact that you didn't measure up to a cultural standard. Based to the fact, this is where I'm going into application, I apologize. But this is what's happening in this church as well. And he's like, listen to me. All of this, all that you're hearing from these false People is what appears wise, but in their heart it's not wise. It appears as if it's worship, genuine, but it's self-imposed. And in this statement, it appears that Paul may be addressing practices which required actually harming their bodies. So while they were harsh in their bodies, they were so, they were so out of false humility some suggest, some scholars suggest that maybe they really exercise a very strong version of fasting. And so while they would fast for long periods of time, 
It wasn't to draw closer to God. It was to gain glory and possibly the worth of others or the approval of others. And in the same way today, some people harm themselves because it gives them a sense of control. When people do this, even if it is cloaked as in doing it for Jesus, it does not bring about the reward or the fulfillment that true surrender to Jesus does. So I do need to stop here for a moment because we're, we're done our verses. But I want to just say this. Some of you have this idea that being a Jesus follower means that you need to suffer. I want to live for Jesus. I want to... I want to all these things and what you do is you make you feel that you need to make life very hard on yourself because if you're having a good time if you're able to celebrate if you're if you're joyful if you're singing if you're dancing something must be off with you and Jesus because being a Christian means it's difficult and miserable and Paul's like no if we are doing those things so that we somehow feel that now we're qualified now we're good enough Paul's like, it's not what really gives you a genuine um, view or relationship or connection to Jesus. That is done by full surrender to Christ. Jesus does not require for you to live in difficulty just so that you can live in difficulty. He may at times require us to live in extreme difficulty, but it would be for his glory, not for ours. And Paul is very clear here against legalism or man-made rules that give the appearance of being spiritual when the true, true experience of Christ is to surrender to him, not to rules. So I want us today, I know I told you I wasn't going to go into application and that rabbit trailed a little bit. I thought to myself yesterday, you know, I'm just going to preach this book next month, and we'll just do application. I got all my research done now. It's fantastic. But I want us today to stand and read these following verses in closing. But I want us to not just read them as like information. I want us today to stand and read these as a worship song, as a declaration, as a statement that our relationship is not based on what we can do or what we are doing. Our relationship is based on what Jesus has done. Our relationship with Christ is based on what He has done for us. And it is done to the full. It is finished. It is all complete. We have the fullness of Christ today dwelling in us. So let's stand, please, and let's read this together. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. I believe I have it up there. If not, you better get your Bibles out. Are we good? <laughs> What's going on? All right, there we go. Thank you. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and fall with thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive.
go to 16, verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we read these words out loud, that for someone here today, they would embrace and fight against this lie that they have to be good enough for you. I pray, God, that they would hear in these words that they are enough, that what you've done, Jesus, is enough. And that we would no longer let others judge us by their standards. But that we would submit and live to you, Jesus. Completely surrender to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.